Welcome to Laptop Gurus from 23, the podcast which aims to provide a deeper level of analysis than you'll find anywhere else. Each episode, I'll be joined by an expert guest to take a deep dive on some of the biggest stories dominating the football agenda using data and tools from our content toolbox. So without further ado, our guest for episode three of Laptop Gurus is Jake Entwistle, content and social media editor at Squawker. Jake, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Thank you very much for inviting me. I've always wanted to be called a laptop guru, so I'm going to make this as a claim now. I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Can't complain. Delighted to have you on the show. We've tried to get you on a couple of times previously, but you're a busy man and a man in demand doing excellent things at Squawker. And a neat segue there, just tell us a little bit about your job day to day, because I don't think I've really done it justice by just but just saying your job title, you're a very busy man. Yeah, maybe maybe I bring that upon myself more than anything else. But um, yeah, at Squawker, what we're trying to do is, is try and bridge that gap between the super analytics that your toolbox and 23 provide and basically try and make that a bit more accessible to a, a general audience to not cause offence, but... I am far from the cleverest person that you could get on this podcast to do something about a laptop, a laptop guru. So that's why I said I wanted to be called one because I know that there is far more that you can do with data and the information provided. What we try and do is cut it off in little chunks and 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 interrogate it and question it and and try and have fun with it and come of it come at it from more of a not the guru language, I suppose, and try and see what we can learn from that. And and then what we're trying to do is include that into the more day-to-day stuff. Our, our match day coverage is, is what I'm heavily involved in from a social media perspective. Um, trying to be an accompaniment to people watching the games. If you feel like you're seeing Adama Traore take on seven players, we can tell you that he probably has. Um, and trying to have fun with it like that. And then the more sort of planned out content that we're trying to do now is is really trying to learn about players. What what does this data tell us? What does it mean? Um, and and basically trying to learn and enjoy football through the lens of a few little numbers that help make it a bit more exciting, which probably makes me sound like a, a bit of a nerd. But as I said, I'm not clever enough to be the proper football nerd. We've certainly got a lot to share based on your Twitter and, and knowing you a little bit as well. And I would say that although you've you talked there about kind of going beyond the, the big headlines and what have you, we are going to start today's show uh, with, with somebody who's been kind of in the headlines really, well, since the moment he burst uh, into the first team at Aston Villa under Tim Sherwood all those years ago. I'm, of course, talking about Jack Grealish, whose performances have very much put him on the front pages in the past, now uh, on the back pages where he belongs Gareth Southgate's kind of apparent reluctance to include him in his England squad and then his starting eleven appears to have abated at long last and we've in the last week, uh, without trying to give away when we're recording, seen him being being particularly impressive uh, against Belgium, a, a, a bright spot in an otherwise disappointing evening for England in the UEFA Nations League. And I know it's someone that you're very interested in, Jake. So it's no longer up for debate. He is a, a kind of bona fide star of the Premier League and of England, it seems, at the moment. What was the turning point in his career? Because there was a time when it wasn't viewed, he wasn't viewed that way. Yes. And before we start on Jack Grealish, I, I felt compelled to say that 
although I've taken a, a recent interest in him, in his foul winning ability, which is, which is what I meant by not the main stories, I guess, is I'm interested in the headlines, but I try and look for something that is maybe a bit different to, to what we're going to see. So his foul winning ability isn't different, but that's an example of maybe not just looking at his goals and assists, really focusing in on his ball carrying and, and dribbling ability. But the man you should have got on for Jack Grealish is probably George Ellick from the Not top, not the Top 20 pod because he, he would argue that he's been a bona fide star ever since he made his debut for Aston Villa. And, and although he's far more um, versed in, in delivering that opinion, when I was looking at the numbers and again, sort of nothing incredible in terms of deep, deep analysis, but flicking through the content toolbox, comparing season by season, there was a massive uptick in his output at the start of the 2017-18 championship season. Um, 2016-17 was obviously the first season back in the championship after the diabolical Premier League campaign. And, and people, I don't know if they do forget, but Grealish lost every single game he played in that season. So that sort of experience of top-tier football is enough to break any person I think, and 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 give you a real bump in confidence. But um, and 2016-17 wasn't wasn't the best for Grealish. Um, Steve Bruce replaced Di Matteo pretty quickly. They finished the season 13th after finishing the season well. Um, but Grealish only played in um, two of the seven wins they got in their last 14 games and started just one. And although he scored five goals, which is more than he'd get in the following season. Um, his numbers in terms of sort of what we associate with him now in per 90 metrics was 1.8 shots per 90, 1.3 chances created and 1.6 successful take-ons. And I've chosen those three as what we associate with, with attacking wing players really. Um, and even his foul winning ability that I've alluded to, that was at 3.9, 3.9 fouls, one per 90, which is actually low. For, for Jack Grealish and what we associate with him now. So in, in, in order to build a story of how he's maybe developed and, and become this genuine uh, superstar at international level, I, I believe, um, in 2017-18, Steve Bruce changed to a sturdier 4-1-4-1 formation. And that gave Jack Grealish the opportunity to start picking the ball up a bit deeper because he was playing as a number eight rather than a left winger or a number 10, which, is, which, he'd, which he'd been used as before. Um, and all of a sudden, his shots go up to 2.6 per 90, chances created 2.5. Take-ons in this season, he's not got anywhere near since. He was at 3.8 successful take-ons per 90. So without going back to watch every single match that he's played, looking at the, the base numbers to give me an idea is... 2017-18 was the season which he started to become that ball-carrying menace from deep and, and was really getting to grips with driving past players and getting Aston Villa up the pitch. Um, as we know with St Maximan at Newcastle and Steve Bruce now, he's a one-man counter-attack and Grealish would have been fulfilling that same role, I think, in this based on his take-on numbers and, and the system being played. Then obviously Dean Smith arrives and, and Jack Grealish becomes a number eight, number 10 hybrid, swapping between both. Again, I'm getting you some good early plugs in, but the toolbox allows us to look at the minutes played per position on the pitch. And as a percentage, in 
45% as this number eight left-sided and 43% as a number 10. His base numbers were pretty much the same as the season before, but his foul winning ability went up to 4.9 per 90, which we saw he was fouled seven, seven times against Belgium. Um, it, 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 it's his it's his calling card, if you will, and you can't stop him, so you have to kick him. And yes, he may go down, but winning fouls is brilliant when you've got people like Trippier, well, 2018 World Cup Trippier in your, in, in your side, Trent Alexander-Arnold hopefully moving forward, taking those set pieces. But to rattle through that sort of quick-fire development season by season, the moment that Super Jack became known as that really to the wider footballing community, I would say is it was the game after a three-month injury layoff, which was probably because he was being fouled 4.9 times per 90 minutes. Um, he became captain Jack Grealish for the first time and Aston Villa subsequently went on a club record 10-game winning streak, carrying them into the playoffs and, and, then, and the rest is history. But his return and the subsequent winning streak that they went on was attributed to his his comeback. And I feel like all of the good that had been developed in those seasons before that I was that I was talking about, it wasn't a sudden increase in his ability, but that's when everyone took notice of him, um, I- including myself, really, seeing his foul-winning numbers, his chance creation numbers, and really starting to realise, right, I know now why Spurs were linked with this guy so often, because... He's he's a genuine phenom at, at progressing the ball and, and getting it into dangerous areas. So what you're saying is essentially that for all the numbers and all the research and all the analysis, that a large part of it came down to the intangible of him coming back from injury and being uh, being made captain and, and and taking on additional kind of responsibility. I, I'm joking, of course. There's a lot there's a lot more to it than that. Um, an easy kind of assertion to make about Grealish is that he's not a particularly hard worker, doesn't contribute a lot defensively. And we're going to come on to the, the Grealish-Mason Mount debate that's very contemporary in a little bit. I just want to get your take on that um, perspective, Jake, that that is certainly being kind of perpetuated by uh, people on Twitter and, and kind of football pundits and what have you. Is there something in that? Is 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 that is that fair, or is or is there actually more to his game than the the, the exciting, sexy attacking, uh, dribbling, and so on that we see and enjoy? I wouldn't look at Jack Grealish and think he gives you absolutely everything in every part of the pitch, um, and and I I wouldn't want him to uh, to be honest. Um, what Grealish does brilliantly is relieve any amount of pressure you've got on your defensive line by carrying the ball forward and no one being able to tackle him um and to to sort of actually answer your question he he does get through defensive work he he is part of as i said remember that 4141 that steve bruce used dean smith actually used that last year um it was more of a 4-1-4-1 than, than a 4-3-3. And you have to be relatively hardworking in order to keep that shape. Um, you can't give too much of a burden to your fullback or your centre midfielder as, as people will pass through you. And maybe maybe at the beginning that was happening a bit and that's why Aston Villa were conceding a few goals. Maybe Jack Grealish was putting too much emphasis on, on, on his offensive play. But I feel like 
that's what needed to happen. And, and this season, we're seeing that when he's given the platform to be um, the most advanced player and, and, and have all attacking, well, not all attacking responsibility, because um, that will contradict a point that I was looking to make later. But in, in keeping him in, keeping him in the most advanced areas for as long as possible is good. And his stats, again, isn't a prolific tackler of the ball. It's actually gone up this season in terms of per 90. And again, that's probably because Aston Villa themselves have got better as a team. So his defensive output has always been relative to the approach of Aston Villa. For a while, they looked to sit deep and, and absorb pressure and Mings and Konsa became clearance magnets. Um, so Gre- Grealish's defensive output was never going to be great because he wasn't engaging in, in defensive actions. Whereas this season, Aston Villa looked like a great side. They're being more proactive and Grealish is a part of that. So I wouldn't say that he should be celebrated as, as, uh, as a complete defensive phenom as well because he doesn't need to be, but it would be unfair to say that he can't work within a defensive unit because he's he's part of a side that's had to do it hyper-defensively and is now part of a more forward-thinking pressing side um, with his ball recoveries going up in the attacking third. Um, so he can obviously do it. I Hard-working and defensive contribution is is always, I think, the easiest um, stick to beat players with. So... I usually try and avoid it uh, unless unless there is clear reason for why someone is making no tackles. But but Grealish is doing the work he needs to do and I would much rather he be dribbling and scoring at the rate he is than than adding a few extra tackles. But I guess I'm a I'm an idealist in that sense and I know it's not always possible. You mentioned there Villa's kind of 4-1, 4-1 last season and how it was more that than 4-3-3. How do they set up? How does Dean Smith set them up to maximise Grealish's threat? And how does he kind of work in, in tandem with the rest of the Villa midfield? So at the start, I discussed sort of how he went from a left winger to number 10 to number 8 and then moved back to number 10 a bit. He's actually now playing as a left winger and you mentioned the Mason Mount debate and I know we were we were planning to maybe focus on that a bit more but but Grealish now is is the man that Gareth Southgate has been say, telling us he is in terms of the stats and his and his positioning because Grealish is playing as a as a wide left forward um we associate him carrying the ball from deep, but that's because Aston Villa prefer to drop deep when they do defend, and then he's brilliant at progressing the ball. I know Opta have have all of their incredible metrics that I don't quite have my hands on yet about progressive ball carries and and shots after ball carries. And Jack Grealish from inside his own half is is leading that metric by a mile. So I say advanced position when they're on the ball, but he is still doing that brilliant stuff from carrying deep. To refocus on, on why he's now playing left wing, that's because of the introduction of, of Ross Barkley. Last season, Grealish was stationed left midfield and they aimed to get midfield solidity um, and give him a free role. So in the extreme, he would have to tuck in at left midfield and, 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 and be a, uh, a man in front of Matt Target, but was given licence to roam completely when they, when they had the ball. He, he's doing that again this season, but... And why I stopped myself earlier was because the creative 
burden and responsibility to progress the ball and, and get the ball in the box has been shared with Ross Barkley. And, and that loan signing is a massive reason why now Aston Villa can explore a 4-2-3-1 on paper um, and be more attacking and why Grealish has returned to an actual left winger because Barkley is, is dovetailing with him more centrally and, and is an experienced player in that role and a very good one, even if his decision-making is what has sort of tainted his career. Ross Barkley is a good player and he's proving it again. To talk about how they're sharing the responsibility, um, I'm dipping all over the place in terms of data here, but on Football Ref, uh, fbref.com, if, you, if, you, if anyone's used it before, they use StatsBomb data and they, they have a metric called shot creating action, actions, which looks at shots that are, are a result of dribbles, passes, rebounds, uh, and set pieces. So it's a bit more than chances created, we were talking about earlier. Um, and Jack Grealish and Ross Barkley are in the top five for per 90. Uh, they have over five each, and only De Bruyne is ahead of Barkley, who is second. So Grealish's new role alongside Barkley is, is yeah, I, I was stunned by it. I didn't think Barkley was doing that well. And I should add that he had a lot of dead ball ones. So he's he's taken creative responsibility in the terms that he's taking a few more set pieces as well. But in general, Ross Barkley is taking a lot of shots himself too. So Whereas last season, Jack Grealish was a one-man counter-attack, as I mentioned. Uh, the only reason they would get up the pitch is when Jack Grealish would carry the ball. The fact that he can now share that with Barkley actually gives him more freedom to be further up the pitch. And again, exploring advanced um, visualizations in the toolbox, such as average positions and passing networks. Jack Grealish, based on his on-the-ball actions, is the most advanced player in that Aston Villa side. And I know this is an audio um, platform, so I can't describe it and people can't see it too well. But he is now playing as that left forward that Gareth Southgate always references him as. He's now playing as if he were a Marcus Rashford. The stat that illustrates Grealish's new role in this 4-2-3-1 the best is that in the previous four seasons, he never averaged more than four touches inside the opposition box per 90. In 2021, because he's now being pushed forward by Barkley's involvement in the pitch, he's averaging 10 touches in the opposition box per 90 minutes. After seven games, Grealish has already reached half of his 29-20 total for touches inside the opposition box. It was 138 last season. He's had 70, so more than half technically, um, and only Mohamed Salah, who is a wide forward, the most advanced player in Liverpool's team, but on the opposite side because he's left-footed, only Salah has had more so far. And I know we're seven games in, so the sample size is very small. But to go from four to ten, even seven games in, is signals to me not just a purple patch. That is a complete change in role, and I believe that is massively down to Ross Barkley. Um, Matty Cash drops slightly deeper to be a third centre-back and Trezeguet becomes a right wing-back. And this is because the, the Aston Villa's play is so geared towards getting Grealish on the ball that they tip the scales to make the left more advanced if that, if that is becoming easy to visualise. I'm not sure if I'm explaining it too well, but because everything is funnelled towards that, Douglas Louise plays right centre-midfield and is the deepest one because the right is the more defensive side. 
and you slowly get a progression up left of everyone getting more advanced than they should be, um, culminating in Grealish being, he he's literally, if you look at his heat map, burning a hole in the opposition penalty area this season. Um, and it makes him, he's come full circle. He's not even the winger that he started out to be. He is now what we term in the modern in the modern game, he is a wide forward. He is, he is playing inside the opposition box and doing a lot of his on-the-ball actions inside the opposition area um, from a wide position. And, and the introduction of Barkley, and I should mention Ollie Watkins as well, although not part of that midfield setup, um, allows him to do it. And if you want to get a glimpse of their 3-4-3, look how they press Liverpool for the first goal in that game. Um, Ollie Watkins is central. Barkley's playing almost like a right wide forward and Grealish is left. And Barkley presses, Watkins presses, Grealish gets the ball, passes it back to Watkins. And and Aston Villa themselves are a really intriguing team this season. And 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 it's it's incredible that one one loan signing as well as a couple of fairly expensive but not marquee signings in Watkins and and, and Matty Cash from the championship, of course, um, has enabled them to to bring Grealish into his final form, if you will. No, certainly right. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times there, just touched on the England conundrum, the England question, and that was something I just wanted to round off on Grealish. Obviously, we are in an international break um, as, as we speak. Um, he was kind of a, probably one of those players that's been, uh, there's been a campaign, shall we say, for his inclusion, and it has been turned into a bit of a meme, him against uh, Mason Mount to the point that even Gareth Southgate who just doesn't look like a man who would know what a meme is uh, referenced it recently as well so tell me this Jake why firstly has uh, Southgate relented what has what has changed in either how he wants to set up with England I I don't think that's the answer but uh, with in Grealish and the way he plays and and the the Grealish versus Mount debate they're not even the same player are they even remotely so why is that a thing? So to to sort of re-emphasize a point that may have probably been lost in my long description of of asymmetrical diamonds and 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 false three four threes, Gareth Southgate has actually been super consistent in his dealing with Grealish. I think we may not agree with it, and and perhaps there should be leeway to not consider him in this way. But Gareth Southgate has always compared Grealish and said he's competing with Marcus Rashford. Marcus Rashford plays left wing for England and now Manchester United. Marcus Rashford is a wide forward. Grealish wasn't doing that at an elite level last season because of the way Aston Villa was set up. He was a free-roaming left midfielder given a licence to do what he wants from a wide position because he likes to dribble in from the left onto his right foot. But he wasn't behaving as a wide forward in, in, in Gareth Southgate's ideal of that position. And Marcus Rashford, by the way, was in incredible form and is an incredible wide forward. So I feel like Grealish wasn't playing, for, not for the right reasons, because as I said, I think there's a world in which he plays with Marcus Rashford as a number eight and and that's relating to that positional development I sort of tried to detail earlier. But currently, in Gareth Southgate's mind, Grealish is only playing in that left-wing position. Marcus Rashford was unavailable for this international break. Grealish had to play. 
Sterling was unavailable in the end. Um, Sancho hasn't been in great form. So whether Gautelka actually wanted to play Grealish for both games may have... I, I, I probably contest that he was planning to do it, but he had to in the end. And, and obviously it's worked in Grealish's favour because he was by far the best player against Belgium. We saw glimpses of his... Um, combination play in and around the box as I said a lot of touches inside the opposition box which is which is new for him um, but is what Southgate wants to see um, and also that ball carrying ability that I mentioned uh, including that mesmeric touch over uh, a Belgian presser uh, and carrying the ball all the way up the pitch to again lacking maybe a final pass as a team England but he did everything that you would want from that sort of left wing position or in a 3-4-3, it's not really left wing. It's like left attacking midfield, I guess. Because Saka, who came on and, and, and linked very well with Grealish, I thought, provides that width the same way that Target does as a proxy left wing back that I mentioned earlier. But to focus on Mason Mount, which again was your question, um, and I've, I've deviated maybe slightly, is, is although Mount played on the mirrored position, um, I perceive them as, as different players, as you said, because, and the way I tried to think about it and, and try and define it was that, firstly, Mount doesn't stand out in a specific category um, statistically because he's a very well-rounded player. And I, I should probably premise this by saying I really like Mason Mount. So if anything, any of this comes across negative, it's definitely not because I've profiled Mason Mount um, for Scouted Football, which is another um, sort of site that I, I don't do as much for now, but w w was a reason for my interest in football is, is profiling young players. And when he went to Derby, and I referenced Kevin De Bruyne in his profile a lot because Mount is a ball striker and Grealish is a ball carrier. And what I try to describe and why I try to use those terms is because Mason Mount is a brilliant crosser of the ball his his passing is is, is incisive penetrative um, he loves to shoot and shoots often Grealish is obviously a chance creator a combination player but he thrives in in dribbling and and moving with the ball whereas Mason Mount's on the ball actions are usually static or or that's when he's best he can dribble and can carry the ball of course but his combination play or his his ability to strike the ball is what separates him and, and was what make it, will make him a great player. Whereas Grealish, it's his ability to carry it and progress it. Um, so in order to discuss why they're two different players, at this current moment, if Grealish were to join Chelsea, he wouldn't be competing with Mason Mount. Grealish would be competing with Christian Pulisic and Timo Werner for that left-wing position. And if Mason Mount were to join Aston Villa, he could quite easily play Ross Barkley's role or even John McGinn's. And, and you wouldn't want Grealish in either of those, given the current setup. So I thought that was a, a good way um, to discuss their, their similarities and differences, is that essentially they should be able to play together. So there should never be a debate of either or. Sometimes there might only be a position that they both can play and you look for a one or the other to give you a different dynamic, but there shouldn't be a, some sort of one or the other because they're different players. They can offer you different things. And in, and in the best case scenario, they would actually work brilliantly uh, together.
Well, there you have it. It's solved. We now just need to work out, if you're listening, Gareth, we just need to work out how to get uh, Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford and uh, Jaden Sancho in. So no mean feat. So well, don't envy Gareth Southgate, I think it's fair to say, but it's a good position. It's the cliched good headache to have, I think it's fair to say. We're going to take a very quick break and then we'll be back to talk about Chelsea's, and I'm quoting Jake himself here, siege weapon, Rhys James and Hakim Ziyech down the right-hand side. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Laptop Gurus. My name's Tom Bedell and today I'm joined by Jake Entwistle, content and social media editor at Squawker. In the first part of the show, we were talking about Jack Grealish and his potential role in the England side and his, his general brilliance for Aston Villa. We're going to move on now to Chelsea's, quote, siege weapon, Rhys James and Hakim Ziyech, the partnership that they've forged down the right. A lot was made of Chelsea's summer transfer splurge. They obviously spent a, a hell of a lot of money and bought in some really exciting players and to the point, in fact, that Hakim Ziyech was almost kind of forgotten about uh, the small price of €40 million, Euros, uh, overshadowed, I guess, by the, the, the subsequent additions of Timo Werner and, and Kai Havertz. Uh, injury in the early part of his Chelsea career didn't help things, but he's back now and he's become the first Chelsea player since Diego Costa to score in his first two all-competition starts for the Blues. Man of the match in the recent drubbing of Sheffield United, supplying two assists. And equally exciting is the form of the man behind him, Rhys James. Academy products, of course, seems to have cemented his position as Cesar Aspilicueta's long-term heir. It all looks very exciting from a, a Chelsea point of view, Jake. And when we were discussing topics for this show, as I alluded to already you, you described these two as the equivalent of a Premier League siege or the Premier League equivalent of a siege weapon I should say what did you mean by that essentially these two players are built to get the ball into the box as often as possible and and with the most danger as possible and and I I mean siege weapon because if you imagine them as some sort of catapult launching the ball into the box and and not doing so in the way that that sounds, in the sense of just getting it in there for the box's sake. Um, these two players are elite level penalty area entry players. And I can't think of a proper term to do it, but the, the, the stat that I use is penalty area entries or or passes into the box. And and, and crosses in general, which usually go into the box or go beyond if they're if they're slightly over hit. But Rhys James in the Premier League this season is averaging 6.5 open play crosses per 90 minutes, which is the most of any player that has played at least 180 minutes so far. Again, we're dealing with a small sample size. But if you go back and include last season as well, he he's in the top five. Uh, Hakim Ziyech in his brief Premier League career um, is averaging 11.9 passes into the box per 90. That includes set pieces, um, and it's the second most of any player with 180 minutes. Only Trent Alexander-Arnold um, can beat him, and he breaks 12. And we all know about Trent's ability to get the ball uh, essentially right on the penalty area for any Liverpool attacker to score. Combined, James and Ziyech are averaging 9.7 open play crosses per 90 minutes. 
And for a bit of context, because I know I'm using a lot of numbers here, uh, Man United, Spurs, Crystal Palace and Southampton are all averaging below 10 crosses open play attempted a game. So these two, again, they're not playing every minute of every game. And Ziyech has only played 190 minutes of Premier League football. So it is very early, but... As part of my role at Squawker, we did a Premier League uh, preview podcast and I went on a big deep dive on, on why Ziyech is, is, is going to provide the most assist this season. Obviously, the fact that he didn't play the first five games and Harry Kane has become some sort of through ball demon um, means he probably won't make that prediction come true. But if you wanted more Ziyech based uh, research than I can maybe give on this, that's a good reference point to to double down some of the points I'll probably be making. But the reason I use Siege Weapon is because with these two now in the side, Chelsea's right-hand side will become their chief means of getting the ball into the box um, through this crossing, as well as general just passing excellence. Ziyech and James are technically superb players, and, and now they're developing this perfect marriage of that down the right-hand side. Um, again, to get the the toolbox plug in, which I, I can never speak highly enough and, and I use all of the time, is a threat map which you actually picked out before I did. So you, I need to give you credit here in terms of picking that out. Is The tool in, in, in that box looks at how often teams use a flank either the left-hand side, the middle third, or the right-hand side uh, to attack. And then it paints the threat of those attacks by the brightness of the red or or whichever colour arrow you're using. And although Chelsea's threat map, I actually went and looked at the exact games that Ziyech and James played together. And it was a a 39 split left and right. But the 39% on the right-hand side was glowing bright red. Um, which suggests that the more dangerous attacks are being produced down this this siege weapon right-hand side. So that's where the siege weapon term came from, because these two players are are perfectly built and tasked to keep getting the ball into the box for for Chelsea's uh, left-hand side, which is is built full of goal scorers and poachers, including Ben Chilwell himself, who, who was Ziyech's first assist in that Sheffield United game um, to score from. How effective and, and, and just how dangerous are these two down Chelsea's right-hand side? And how does that, that partnership actually work on a kind of practical level? How do they uh, kind of interact with, with one another, if, if that makes sense? In terms of how effective they are, I, I tried to find, again, a number that would give me the answer. And again, he's hardly played any minutes. So please play, take this with, with with multiple pinches of salt. But Ziyech already has the, the best expected assist per 90 in the Premier League, according to um, the toolbox. And we and we process the Opta data for that. Um, so in terms of effective, he is the most effective creator at the moment, if you want to say that. Um, and that's because of his partnership with James, I think. In terms of how it works, it's not necessarily groundbreaking. I, I don't want to sort of paint it as some revolutionary way that no other manager has ever explored because it's it's how you would manage a full how would how you would imagine a fullback and a winger to 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 associate in a game but what's more fascinating about Chelsea and 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 these two in particular is 
with Ziyech's introduction to the team, they're now looking settled on a 4-3-3 system. But what is amazing, again, is I really wish I could somehow get the visualisation. Um, so you're going to have to try and let my words paint the picture. Um, if you look at their passing network, Chelsea's 4-3-3 is actually split into three really clear, specific triangles. The first of which is the centre-back, um, or the two centre-backs, Anangolo Conte, playing as the holding midfielder. Then you have a triangle on the right, which includes Reese James, Kai Havertz and Hakim Ziyech. And then you have a triangle on the left-hand side of the pitch, really closely knit together and really starkly on the left, which involves Ben Chilwell, Timo Werner and Mason Mount, who we've, we've talked about a lot already. Um, then you have Tammy Abraham just waiting in the box and actually dropping deeper to, to, to link play and essentially give it to one side while they work out what to do in their triangle with the aim of getting it into the box. Um, but what's great about this is that using that threat map as well, we can sort of analyse that Chelsea's right-hand side, this triangle is geared towards creating chances for the left-hand side that contains the, the goal scorers. And I mentioned Mason Mount as a ball striker earlier. His off-the-ball movement and, and his pressing is also another string to his bow. And he's probably going to become a greater goal scorer um, than an assist provider. And, and in this system especially, he will be looking to work with Werner Chilwell um, and Abraham to get in the box while this right-hand side is concocting some sort of cross from their catalogue of, of passes that they possess to get it to them. So... In terms of Reese James and Ziyech themselves, it's not unlike the target Grealish uh, relationship I mentioned earlier, uh, in the sense that Reese James is there to help give Ziyech as much space as possible to, to, to wave his magic wand of a left foot by overlapping and underlapping and giving Ziyech the space to either roam inside and, and, and use in swinging crosses with his left foot, reverse passes. Or alternatively, he can just give it to Reese James if 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 the opposition players look to close down Ziyech instead. And as I said, Reese James is is crossing the ball into the box with well, is the most regular crosser of the ball uh, in the Premier League this season. And the, the most interesting part is that it's not just overlapping Ziyech while he's standing on the wing. Is Reese James? Is, is one of Chelsea's best academy products and uh, has been there, has been a mainstay in, in, in their dominant youth teams in the recent seasons and actually played at right centre-back. Um, and when he went on loan to Wigan, he was so good that he even started playing in midfield. So what we're seeing with James and Ziyech is that sometimes James will drift inside into midfield to combine with Ziyech rather than just overlapping. And, and that just adds an extra dimension and, and gives uh, Ziyech the, the ability to cross the ball from better angles and different angles, as opposed to simply always cutting inside based on an overlapping run. And when you consider that they have Kai Havertz as the, as the number eight in that role, um, Chelsea, and this was discussed on that, on that podcast that I mentioned earlier, uh, they probably have one of the most attacking and, and, and on-ball dominant right-hand sides that you could wish for. 
especially especially on paper. And probably the only reason it works is because this holding midfielder in that side is Angolo Conte. And we know from his time in the Premier League that one half of Angolo Conte is all you need to cover uh, a vast amount of attacking talent. So Conte's doing the right side and the left side triangle, um, but that's more than enough because he's he's the world's best or or at least one of the world's best at, at doing so. Without uh, the risk of, I should say, turning this into a very England-centric podcast, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners thrive on England's misery and, and, and perpetual disappointment and shortcomings and whatnot, um, a lot has been made of England's right-back position uh, in, in recent times. Gareth Southgate calling up multiple uh, you know, numerous players, in fact, Carl Walker, Kieran Trippier, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Reese James, uh, who all of whom can play right back, Trent Alexander-Arnold, of course, before his injury as well. And I think, I think I'm right in saying you'll probably be able to correct me if I'm wrong, it was Daniel Storey that made a, a starting eleven purely of England eligible right backs in the last few weeks, uh, just to underline that the, the real richness of, of, of options available to Gareth Southgate in that particular position. A lot has been made and a lot of it's been, you know, poking fun at Southgate, uh, perhaps rather cruelly. In that cast of thousands, and this is where I'm eventually getting to, wh- where does Rhys James come out in the battle to be England's right back? Because, so there are a lot of different players there and, and, and different roles, different horses for courses. Carl Walker has, of course, been played as a right-sided centre-half in the back three. Uh, we're going to be without... Trent Alexander-Arnold imminently, it seems. So where does Rhys James sit? Is he uh, England's long-term number two as well as Chelsea's, or is he going to have to really do battle to, to win out in that in that fight? Ever since the emergence of, of Alexander-Arnold and, and Wan-Bissaka, I've, I've been sort of borderline obsessed with England's right-backs. A pass from Trent played when I think he was 18 years old is, is, is my most viral personal tweet that I've done. And I've been lost in many... A rabbit hole exploring the players that have actually managed to dribble past Wan-Bissaka, especially when he was at Crystal Palace. Um, I did a lot of research into just why he was this incredible 1v1 duelist um, and and what makes him the cleanest tackler in, in Europe. Um, and I started to sort of Again, I don't, I'm not trying to claim this as there's probably, it probably already exists, but you start to get a picture of some sort of right back Venn diagram in your in your mind, um, in which Trent Alexander Arnold represents the modern right back, the the ball distributor, the ball progressor, um, the the player that can put the ball in any part of the pitch with um, from any part of the pitch, and and Wan Bissaka is the 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 polar opposite in the sense that he is the throwback right back. He is the the ball winner, the defend first, the you shall not pass um, type of right back that is 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 lesser spotted um, in Europe these days, given the emphasis on 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 wing backs overlapping overlapping, like I said about James and and Ziyech's partnership. So for me, Reese James actually sits perfectly in the middle of these two if not slightly with a modern lean, given the crossing that I spoke about, but he is the ball progressor and the ball winner um, that makes him sort of the complete option for for England's right back. And if you want to make the Venn diagram sort of three-dimensional, which I'm not sure is, is, is even a term or possible, 
um, Tarek Lamptey's emergence as this new right back that is an off-the-ball right back that is super speedy and can almost teleport from one box to the other um, and provides incisive off-the-ball runs, that gives England just another option. Uh, as you said, horses for courses in terms of the right back. Um, but for me, I think Rhys James will suit Gareth Southgate more because he's actually not seen as a specialist. Um, I wouldn't give him this disservice of saying jack of all trades because I think he's a master of most of them. Um, but because Liverpool are maybe almost unrepeatable in style and dominance, Southgate might feel he's unable to give Trent Alexander-Arnold the same platform to distribute as he does. As we mentioned earlier, he's he's 12 point. Um, 0-2 passes into the box per 90 so that's pretty good but maybe Southgate feels he can't replicate that and as for Wan-Bissaka because England have these more technically advanced options they are chosen because Southgate wants to be more proactive and and while Wan-Bissaka is improving in his ability to get further forward and, and combine with Man United's forwards his greatest asset will always be what he provides defensively and I've always thought that could end up leading him to be a good choice for a right centre-back because although Carl Walker sees a lot of the ball, wan could be stationed there as a last line of defence that pretty much no winger or forward would be able to get past. And that little description is why I would always make the case that all three should always be in the squad because it allows you a right-back for any and every single scenario the football world could possibly construct um but that's why I feel race Reece James is is will be the preferred choice because he gives you everything no absolutely right it's it's remarkable how many good right backs we've got and I'd completely forgotten Juan Basaka and Tarek Lamptey until you mentioned those guys our thanks to Jake for giving up his time if you aren't already you can follow him on Twitter at Jake Entwistle and do also make sure that you're following our friends at Squawker as well they really do produce some fantastic content with the aid of the content toolbox and they are very much your one-stop shop for all the football analysis and coverage that you need finally make sure that you never miss an episode of laptop gurus by subscribing via apple's google spotify or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening and we'll speak again soon mm-hmm.